Well, good morning to you, and greet you in the name of Jesus. It's always a uh, pleasure to be back. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. There's times like this time that I um, look over my spreadsheet and say, no, it says I didn't preach this sermon here. And, uh, and yet in the back of your mind, you wonder, did I preach this one one time when I was really going to preach something else? And uh, I thought about checking, and I said, no, this is the one that it's on my heart. And I guess if you're going to hear it twice, you're just going to hear it twice. So uh, <laughs> maybe God had his reasons for that. So uh, the, uh, the, the passage here, the story of the prodigal son, and the title this morning is The Prodigal Comes Home. There are many sermons focusing on the prodigal himself, and um, this morning I would like to focus on us, the ones at home. How do we relate to the prodigal? And I'd like to do that this morning by, by specifically looking at the father and, and asking the question, how did he relate to his son? What, le- what lessons can we learn? You know, prodigals come in lots of forms. They may be a, a son or daughter that's out in the world. Perhaps there's one that looks like a good Mennonite and they're in the church and, and yet they're dead inside. Perhaps there's someone in your church that is uh, riding the line. You're not sure whether they're in the world or in the church. Perhaps they lost an indifferent husband or wife. Or maybe a lost person in the community that you relate to. A prodigal has a lot of pain. And, and I believe that this pain is often sent by God to make him think of home. And yet, um, often the earthly home has not been without pain. Sometimes it's that very pain that was a factor in them leaving to begin with. But the ones at home are hurting as well. You know, there's always the questions, what did I do? Could I have done something different? Or maybe sometimes for some of us, we we know what we've done or what we haven't done. And then there's the pain of watching them suffer. I'd like to remind you that God also hurts because God hurts when we hurt. And we don't understand how a God that's that big can hurt. And yet I feel that it's true that, that God has a capacity to, to ha- share our pain and the pain of those that are lost. I'd like to begin by um, reading the first seven verses of chapter 15. Luke 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which was lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. 
And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I'd like you to notice that when a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. You know, it's always been the goal of God to restore mankind. If you, uh, if you go back into the, the Genesis story, God is speaking um, to the serpent, I believe, and he says, um, it shall bruise thy head. And even though that statement is for us often, or it has been in the past, um, often shrouded in, in a certain amount of mystery, yet, yet I believe God is clearly saying, you know, I have a plan. My plan is to restore man to myself. It's Jesus' goal for the church as well. Um, Jesus, the, the last job that Jesus gave to his disciples before he left says go and make disciples bring people back to me and I often call that the gospel sandwich he says um, he says all power and authority is mine and then the last part is lo I am with you always and right in between he sandwiches this and he says um, go make disciples and you can do that. You can go make disciples because Jesus has all power and because he's with you. So it's, it's God's goal, the restoration of mankind, not only to, not only to make people who obey, uh, but people who have a restored life, people and, and restored relationships, restored goals, who have a relationship with God, those who are alive, those who are being all that God designed them to be. That is God's goal. He wants us to bring our children, but his goal is bigger than that. He wants the church to go to the world and to bring them in. The church is you and the church is me. And individually we care, we share, and we repair lives. But sometimes someone who has known Jesus or should have falls away and turns back to the mire and, and the, the mud and the filth of the world and he becomes what we call a prodigal, which means restless, I'm sorry, reckless and wasteful. And then what? Let's read verses 8 to 10. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And Jesus seems to be... Um, saying, just in case, just in case you forgot that I just got done telling you, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. I want you to remember that. 
God is always seeking the sinner, not because he doesn't know where the sinner is. It's because he wants the sinner to know that he's wanted. He wants the sinner to answer. Remember um, God speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And I'd like us to feel the desire of God this morning to restore those who are wayward and to, and to make that, bring that desire to burn in our hearts. And so as we think of the, of the lost coin, there's a practical question that I have for you. If you have a lost coin and you sweep the floor to find your coin, what do you get the most of, money or dirt? And that's the way it is when you become the heart of God looking for his lost sheep. You will get more dirt. And that's okay. That's the way it is. Don't expect those who you are seeking to, bring, to, to honor you. Or to say, oh, I'm so glad that you're looking for me. No. It's not going to happen. That honor comes from God. Often, it seems like we can almost be the enemy. So the question comes, how can we embody the heart of Jesus in bringing back the lost sheep? So, you know, how do we, how do, we do it? If God has laid <clears throat> his burden upon you, for, for one or for many of his lost sheep. You know, maybe there's a child, a grandchild, a spouse. Uh, maybe it's someone in your church. Maybe it's a whole conference he's laid on your heart. Or a whole conference full. How can we embody the heart of Jesus to bring them back to him? First of all, I think we need to recognize the problem. Let's keep reading in, in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided to them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You know, at the heart of every prodigal is self-will. You may have done things that you shouldn't have done. You may have caused him to be discouraged. Or you might look at the church and say, well, it was the church's fault. But at the bottom, at the heart of every prodigal person, there is a heart of self-will. That needs to be broken for him to return. And you know that's not your job. It's not mine. It's God's. Only God can break that heart. Now, the wounds of a prodigal cut deeply. As I said before, it's not only they that hurt, but it's us. It's the ones at home. It may be the church. And sometimes... And, and, and not only that, but the, the pain that we feel is equal to the love that we have for them. 
the greater the love, the greater the pain. And sometimes in our pain, we're tempted to, to blame them and say, you know, if you would just... But I'd like to tell you that as long as we blame, we can't win. It's a, the pain is something that we have to be willing to take into our hearts and absorb and feel and suffer. And if we, if we, if we fight against that pain, then, then we're going to have a hard time reaching them. So what specific things can we, can we do? What can we learn from this passage? First of all, we must see them as God's sheep. They're not our sheep. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And you know, if, if heaven rejoices when a, a lost sinner comes home, do you think God is caring about the situation? Yes, he is. He's caring very much. And God is often makes you and I his, his hands and his feet. But let's not remember they're not our sheep, they're God's. But in order for God to use us, we need to feel God's urgency, God's love. We need to be motivated because the, because the master desires it. And we must not forget that, that God is not a part of our project of, re, of restoration. We are a part of God's project. It's been his project all along. It's not ours. We must sweep the floor, not only to find it, but to show God's care to those who are lost. Don't mind the dirt. It's just part of the territory. Every lost sheep has baggage and dirt. Look in your own life. Do you have baggage? Do you have dirt? And the answer is always yes. We all have it. And can you expect the prodigal to have less? No, we can't. Now let's read on, and I would like to see some lessons from the Father's example. Verse 14, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and sent him into the field, and he sent him to the field to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave to him. And when he had come to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no, worthy, no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, by the way, did you notice he never got done with his speech? But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now the elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. You think that was right? And yet thou hast never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet, or it was appropriate, that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. As we mentioned, we must recognize the problem. We must see them as God's sheep. We must sweep the floor. But now let's look at the father. There are several things that I notice about the father. Number one is he did not try, he did not chase him to try to save him from his husks. You know, the prodigal needed the time, the pig pen, to break his will. There was no other way. There was nothing the father could do to save him from the pig pen. If the father wanted him to come back whole, he had to go through the pig pen. And my encouragement to us is let's not get in God's way. There's sometimes we see somebody that's, that's living and the result of their of their, um, their um, willfulness and, and things happen to them because of it. And, you know, we just somehow, we just want to spare them from that. We just want to somehow sweep it over and, and, and fix it and make it okay. Yes, we need to show love. We need to show kindness. But let's not get in God's way. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You notice it's the destruction of the flesh. Now what is, when you think of the flesh and you think about what the flesh wants and, and you know a, a person who is out living in the world and they're looking for pleasure here and they're looking for pleasure there and they think if I can do this I'll be happy if I can do that I'll be happy and they go on and do this and they end up and the goal is for them to end up where Solomon was and where he said vanity of vanities all is vanity and when I realize that, this, that this, the world has nothing to offer that is what you're looking for it needs to happen not the destruction of the soul or the spirit, but the destruction of the flesh. And, and this sounds to me like an official church action. It often comes in that form. And sometimes parents chafe at this official action against sin. And I encourage you, don't do it. Oh, it hurts. It's got to hurt. got to be like a knife in your heart but don't do it 
your child must know that you stand against sin, but that you love him or her. And you will always treat them as your child. They will always be your child. They will always be your friend. They must know that. But there must be that clear distinction. On a personal level, it's something we must allow, that delivering to Satan. But, but I encourage you, you must be in prayer. You must be in prayer. And there's a reason for that. The next thing we see of the father is that he waited patiently for the moment he saw him coming back. Now, if you think of scripture and you think of, of where it talks about waiting, um, there's one in particular that, that I think of, and it is when Jesus told the disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the, of the Father, for the Holy Spirit. And I ask you, how did they wait? Did they sit around and drink coffee and eat donuts? No. They were, they were together in prayer and supplication, it says. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And I tell you, that's how we need to wait for their return. We need to wait in prayer. Jesus told Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. The prodigal needs your prayers. And he needs them bad because he's in unprotected territory. He's no, lo lo he's no longer under the protection of the Father. He's no longer under the protection of the, of the church. He's out on his own. He's in unprotected territory. And Satan's desire is to take him out once and for all. And that's why we need to pray. The father waited patiently until he came unto himself. I love those words. Till he came to himself. And when he came to himself, he said, and that's the moment we're looking for. There we're waiting for and we're praying for. Now the father didn't know when he came to himself. He didn't know that he came to himself until he saw him down the road. That was his first indication. And when he, when he saw him, he was waiting. He was watching. He had his eyes open. You wonder how many times he looked down the road and wondered, will I see him again? When will I see him? When will he come home? But, but you notice in verse 20, his immediate response. And when his father saw him, he had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So first of all, he ran to meet him. There was no asking the question, what took you so long to get home? He didn't ask that question. For every step the prodigal took, the father must have taken three or four. You see, the prodigal was plotting. The father was running. 
And you know, the, and the father's steps were a lot longer than the son's too. You just do that when you run, don't you? There was no question, well, I'll see if he'll make it all the way to the house. We don't know if the prodigal stayed home. The story doesn't tell us. Probably he did, but sometimes they don't. Maybe it depended on the attitude of the elder brother. But let's not forget the father ran to meet him. You see, the, the prodigal, he did have lots of baggage. He does have lots of baggage. That doesn't mean when he comes back he's not for real. He just has more stuff to get rid of. And you know, when, when the father clothed him, it doesn't say anything about him giving him a shower first. We're not sure what happened there. But I'll tell you, when he had a shower, I bet all the smell from the pigs didn't all wash off the first time. That's not going to wash off the prodigal the first time either. The father waited patiently. He ran to meet him, and he kissed him. He lavished love on him. You don't read that the father kissed the elder brother. Probably he did somewhere, sometime. But the prodigal needs large doses of love. He knows he's scum. He knows he's blown it. But he needs to know the love of the father, and he needs to know the love of brothers and sisters. People can feel... It, if we really care, and if we don't. And you know, love is not something that you and I can make up. So, love is something we need to get from Jesus himself. Also, the father poured on forgiveness. He restored his position. Um, he, he did not try to give him back all he wasted, I don't think he could have this father, but he gave him the best he could. He gave him clothes, he gave him a ring, and he gave him shoes. He didn't give him hand-me-downs. He didn't give him what he deserved. He made him the object of honor. And I found it interesting. It says, when he says, go and bring the best robe, um, there's, a, that, there's a special, there's a special, um, that's a special robe with a special name. It was the garment that was laid by. It was the one that was supposed to use for birthdays and for festival times. It was the, evidently the same robe that, the same type of robe that Rebecca had laid by for Esau, um, the one she put on Jacob instead when she made him impersonate his brother. It was a special robe for special times. He restored his dignity. He put a ring on his hand. And giving a ring in ancient times was a mark of honor and dignity. It restored his rank. It made him accepted. And I think, you know, we don't do that by putting a ring on somebody's finger. But perhaps we can do that by asking for help, uh, sharing opinions, 
little subtle things that say, I accept you, your opinion counts. You're important to me. He restored his liberty. He put shoes on his feet. And it's my understanding that those who were in captive, who, who went away captive, had their shoes taken off. They went barefooted. We see that uh, suggested in Isaiah 20. But when they were restored to liberty, their shoes were also restored. And, um, and so, the, in a sense, the, he was saying, I'm, I'm giving you your liberty back. Now, as we do these things to, to someone who comes home, there's always a question of how can we be responsible. And, you know, even in, even in the early church, Paul gave the instructions that, that they were not supposed to ordain someone that was, that was too green, lest he falls into condemnation and, and pride. And, uh, and so I, I guess the same, the same um, challenge would be for us to be careful don't put someone in a position that would be a great temptation, but give them small positions. Build them up. Let them grow. Let them develop. The goal is to give them more as they're able. The father restored his position. It was part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a twin sister to love. When we forgive, we don't hold another at arm's length, but we hold them in our arms. And in our heart. There's a story about Rockefeller I'd like to read for you. John D. Rockefeller built a great standard oil empire. Not surprisingly, Rockefeller was a man who de demanded high performance from his company executives. One day, one of those executives made a $2 million mistake. Word of this man's enormous error quickly spread throughout the executive offices, and the other men began to make themselves scarce, afraid of Rockefeller's reaction. They didn't want to even cross his path. One man didn't have any choice, however, since he had an appointment with the boss, so he straightened his, sh straightened his shoulders and tightened his belt and walked into Rockefeller's office. As he approached the oil monarch's desk, Rockefeller looked up from the piece of paper on which he was writing. I guess you heard about the $2 million mistake our friend made, he said abruptly. Yes, the executive said, expecting Rockefeller to explode. Well, I've been sitting here listing all of our friend's good qualities on this sheet of paper, and I've discovered that in the past he made us more. He made us many more times the amount that he lost for us today by one mistake. His good points far outweigh this one human error, so I think we ought to forgive him, don't you? And I'd like to ask you, is that the kind of forgiveness that God gives? Where he weighs our good and he weighs our bad and says, well, yeah, I guess he's worth forgiving this time. I don't think so. I think it's more like this one. He came to my desk with quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new leaf for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his leaf all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted. Then into his tired heart I smiled, do better now, my child. I went to the throne with trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I have spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. 
Then into my tired heart he smiled, do better now, my child. And isn't that more like the forgiveness of God? God's version of forgiveness is based upon grace and repentance. Forgiveness is giving one the permission to start over. The Father poured on forgiveness. He also celebrated. He did not mourn the loss of all those years. He didn't mourn the loss of those thousands of dollars that, that were poured down the drain, that were wasted. He didn't even mourn the loss of his son's purity. He only celebrated the return. The only thing that mattered to the father was that the son came home. There's a little saying, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. And that's why it's called the present. He focused on the one thing that he came home. He didn't rub it in when he returned. Anyone who is coming home is already mourning his losses. He's already sorry. He's already thinking of all those things he wished he could, have, he could do over, and he can't. And so we must help him celebrate too. After all, the Father is celebrating. The angels are celebrating. So is all of heaven. And why not we? It's called grace. Remember the story of the Israelites when they, when they read the book of the law and they realized how far they were from, from God's, God's perfection and, and they began to weep and, and, and they were told, don't stop. This isn't a time to weep. You've come back to God. It's time to rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The father not only celebrated himself, he helped others to celebrate. You see, the elder son thought it wasn't fair that the prodigal got all the attention. Perhaps he was a little upset because, because um, he felt like he was going to have to share some of his own assets with his brother. And he thought, well, for now, you know, I done got rid of him. He's gone. I don't have to worry about him anymore. And here he comes home of all things. Not only do we need to celebrate, there are some people that we're going to have to help learn to celebrate when he comes home. There will always be those kind. Our dear brothers and sisters that find it difficult. You know, inside was probably a sense of justice. He should pay. He caused me a lot of extra work, a lot of emotional pain or energy. Sometimes we even feel that toward our leaders when they mess up, don't we? There will always be those who find it difficult to celebrate the return of the prodigal. But we must show them the heart of God. 
Turn with me to James chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have mercy, as he shall have judgment without mercy, that is, showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy rejoices, or mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and that is, is God's heart. For us, when we go astray and we come back, that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And our mercy should triumph over our judgment as well. There's another story I'd like to read to you. And the title is Back Home Again. The gray bus rolled past the stockyards, rattled across the railroad tracks, and into the terminal at the end of Front Street. Link, a tall, thin youth, one of the first to step off, was surprised to find his Uncle Carl waiting. There was a warmth, but also a bit of awkwardness in their greeting. Carl explained hastily, I know you weren't looking for me, but I decided to take the morning off from the shop. I can make up the time later. He glanced at the bag in Link's hand. Any more luggage? No, this is it. Carl led the way inside. Stacy's cooking dinner for us. She can't wait to see you. Following his uncle through the station, Link was very conscious of the old-timers on the benches who came in each day to sit around and observe the arrivals and departures. Link is back, they'd say, when they went home at noon, and by mid-afternoon their wives would have spread the word. Carl had the same car he had 18 months ago. He kept it waxed and polished, and its interior was shining clean as Stacy's living room. Carl, a big gentle man who usually had very little to say, was talking constantly now, not asking Link any questions, just telling him how the two boys had grown and what a fine garden Stacy had. They were passing the high school now. It seemed 10 years instead of two since he'd been a student there. Link took a deep breath. I've been wanting to tell you, Uncle Carl, I'd like to get out of my, on my own now. Get me a room closer to town. After I've been working a while, I can get a car, but right now I don't need to be stuck in the suburbs without wheels. Before Carl could respond, he added roughly, I don't know. I might even go to New Orleans and look around. Down there, they got so many jailbirds, one more won't matter. Link. There was real agony in Carl's voice. Don't talk that way. Don't even think like that. Stacy and I, the boys, your friends, we don't want you to think any of us feel differently. You made a mistake. It's paid and settled. Let's not think of it anymore. 
Already regretting the bitter, bitter remark, Link apologized. He noted, however, that Carl hadn't argued a bit about his moving to room downtown. Stacy greeted Link warmly, hugging him. She stepped back, her eyes appraising. You need a lot more meat on those bones, and I'm going to start fattening you. The meal she had prepared was delicious. All the things he liked, crispy fried chicken, cream corn, tender green butter beans, hot corn bread, peach cobbler. He hadn't realized he had been so hungry for home cooking. Groaning, he had to refuse a second helping of the cobbler. I'll have to take a rain check on that. I can eat an, can't eat another bite today. Carl looked directly at his wife. Lynx wants to get a room in town, but I don't see any need for him to hurry. He could stay here a few days until he has time to look around. Of course he could. Getting up, Stacy came around the table to put her hands on Link's shoulders. Get a job first, Link, then you can decide on where you'll live. Oh, it'll all work out. He edged away from the table. I sure do thank you for the dinner. The boys will miss you. There was a wistful note in Stacy's voice, and he knew she was really sorry things had worked out the way they had. He took the bus back to town, and when he got off at Main Street, he was overcome by a lonely, lost feeling. What if no one wanted to hire him? He might have to go to New Orleans after all. Some fellows liked to travel, but he didn't. He just wanted to go on living in Laurel, a small-town boy in a small-town place. There was only one downtown hotel. Link checked in and was given a clean, sparsely fur furnished room on the second floor. Coming back down almost immediately, Link set out on a walking tour of the town. At the end of Main Street, in front of Lawson's garage, he saw a familiar figure, Biff Lawson in greasy overalls bent over the front of a car. Hi, Biff. Biff grunted and stepped back. I'm glad to see you, Link. Take a look at this. Find out what's wrong. I have more work to do than ten men can take care of. And just like that, as if it were yesterday, not 18 months since he had seen him. And the way he said, find out what's wrong, never doubting he could do it. Link bent over the motor, his heart quickening the way it always did when he listened to an engine. He was like a doctor in his eagerness to cure. Biff started into the garage and paused to say, run it around the block a couple times if you need to. Sliding under the wheel, Link marveled. He trusts me. He's given me wheels. He knows I won't run off. His finger shook a little bit as he turned to switch. Just as he put the car in reverse, Link heard heavy footsteps pounding across the street in a harsh voice assailed his ears. What do you think you're going? Get out of my car, Link Walker. Almost in a panic, Link cut off the switch and jumped out. The same time, Biff came out of the garage. Mr. Vance, Link is working for me. The older man snorted. I left the car with you. I'm sort of particular who works on my cars. I know you are. That's why I put a good man on it. Mr. Vance looked from Biff to Link and then back again. All at once, the air seemed to go out of him. Oh, okay, okay, he mumbled and went back into this, across the street. Biff stood there wiping his hands on a grease rag, giving Link time to recover his composure. When he did speak, his voice was gentle. Go ahead with the job, Link. Let me tell you something. If you want a job here, you've got it. Ever since you were a kid, hanging around my shop, you've had a mechanic's skill. I need a fella like you. Link gave a sigh of relief. All week he had come wondering what it was going to be like. He had been wondering what it was going to be like coming home. For a while today it hadn't looked good, but now he looked into Biff's study blue eyes. I don't know of anyone I'd rather work for. Through sudden tears, he squinted down Main Street, nor any place I'd rather be.
being a prodigal is a hard life. And God is working through their pain to bring them back. And the prodigal will only come home when he decides the pain of coming home is less than the pain of being gone. He knows what he's done. He knows what he deserves. But coming home should be a surprise, a surprise of love, uh, the welcoming of celebration, and of forgiveness. And you know, that's what God has done for you and I. And my question to you and to me is can we offer any less? Can we connect our hearts to the heart of God? Can we feel his feelings, his love, his desire toward those who have gone away from him? And can we help, can we welcome the prodigal home? Let's have a song.